Hey folks, welcome to the Inside Line F1 podcast. For this special episode, which I think can be classified as an episode of Voices of F1 and also working in F1, because the guest we've got today has accumulated such a great body of work in both fields that it's hard to actually classify him as either a journalist or only a team principal or a team manager. I don't really know where to begin because I remember back in the mid-2010s when I was watching a lot of Formula 1 content as nearly, what, a 10-year-old. I was like, wow, Peter Winsor, this guy is a great journalist. I, I really enjoy listening to him. But it's only later that I discovered that he's had such a great history in the world of F1, managing the old Williams team that's won many world championships. And also, the most curious and interesting part for me, the US F1 team that we're also going to discuss today. All of that and more is going to be a part of this episode of the Inside Line F1 podcast. But let's actually get right into it. Let's welcome Peter Windsor on the show. And Peter, I can't tell you how long I've waited to have this conversation with you because we've been dreaming about having you on the show for a long, long time. But finally, we're here with you. Firstly, how are you doing and, and what's the mood been like recently? Well, I'm great. I'm wearing my Force India cap, my favorite cap. So life couldn't be better. Uh, I was always a fan of that team, actually, and know a lot of the guys who are still there. And uh, yeah, I, I really miss Force India is the first thing I'd say, but I'm great. You know, lots going on at the moment. I don't know if you know, but I'm the senior archivist for the upcoming Formula One Global Exhibition, which is a nine-year deal, and it's uh, Liberty-backed, and it's about the history of Formula One, past, present, and future. Huge 25,000-square-foot global exhibition that I'm sure will find its way to India, uh, opening in Madrid next March. And so we're absolutely uh, flat out at the moment with that. And this morning, uh, my head is full of Ron Dennis, Frank Williams, Charlie Crichton-Stewart, Mansur Oje. We've been going through all the detail of that. And, uh, yeah, so many. Uh, and I'm interviewing Zach Brown, 8 o'clock. On Monday morning for the for this, I've done eighty three interviews for this global exhibition, so it's a, it's a big thing. And on top of that, yeah, YouTube channel and Twitch, and I'm just about to set off to Singapore, working for uh, Rolex out there at the Grand Prix. So yeah, lots going on, busy. And my son, who's only ten, is a very good golfer, and I'm caddying for him, and I kind of <laughs> try to coach him sometimes as well. <laughs> that, that seems to be a lot going on. And yeah. I, I swear they couldn't have chosen a better person for the archives because when watching your live streams on YouTube recently, I was just fascinated with the amount of, not, not just the amount, but also the quality of the pictures you've got in your archive. So that's quite something to go along. But something from the archive is actually coming back again this year. It's driver shootouts with Alpine. Now, Alpine are in this little, little muddle where they don't know who to actually pick for their driver position. And now they've come back for it. So I want to know your thoughts on it. Is it like a fair way to pick drivers? And the reason why I want to specifically ask this question to you is because uh, your great mate, Nigel Mansell, also got his foot in the door in Formula 1 through a shootout as well back in the day. So just just what is that whole system like all about? Um, well, I'm not a fan of shootouts, I have to say, because I think they can be quite artificial and what you're looking for with the driver isn't necessarily what might come to the service in a shootout. I don't think Nigel made it because of I think you're referring to back end of 79 when five drivers tested the Lotus 79 at Ricard Correct. I don't think it was that I mean that was a good moment for Nigel perhaps to feel a Formula One car and what it was all about but it was a very short run and it didn't have much bearing on what they were going to do with the with that seat next year uh, and if you look at just to continue the Nigel thing that what made Nigel really was uh the test the following year at Silverstone, mid-year 1980, 
where Mario and Elio were driving. And I think Mario had to go back early and they gave Nigel Mario's car for the last day. So he did a full day at Ricard, uh, sorry, at Silverstone in the Lotus 81 uh, with Nigel Stroud as his race engineer. And it's quite a funny story, really, because they were a bit nervous about how Nigel would go, but because he was under contract to Lotus at the time as a van driver, as <laughs> a contract I'd set up, that's how I'd got him in the door. But they thought they'd give him a run. And it was all about, we're not going to give you any lap times, Nigel. You're not required to go quickly. We just want to get some miles. Just want to test this or that. Don't don't think about going out and setting the world on fire. And so, so it was a good thing because Nigel went out in the car, had no idea what lap times he was doing. And all he could do was drive to the feel of the car and the surface of the road and what he felt was the right balance and not balance in terms of handling, balance in terms of feeling the road and also leaving a bit of margin, but equally driving the car as it wanted to be driven. And he did that. And when he came back into the pits after a five-lap run, everybody looked at him with you know massive flame in their eyes, incredibly angry that he'd been out there going so quickly. I mean, he was within a couple of tenths of Mario in that first run. And from Nigel's point of view, he was just driving, as I say, in harmony with the car on the surface of the road. And I think that was the first time anybody at Lotus realized that he had all this talent. And, and from my point of view, I noticed Nigel, very good example, we'll continue with Nigel, in a Formula 3 race at Thruxton in 78, watching him out the back on a bumpy, very fast corner. And just the way he was, he was going over the bumps, what he was doing with the throttle, how he was using the steering, his turn into the chicane, turning in on the brakes really well. Those are the things that you should be watching, I think, anybody should be watching. And I think if a team decides to do a shootout, they're kind of admitting defeat and saying, well, we've got no idea who's quick and who's slow. We don't really understand the art of driving. We'll just put them all in a car and see who's quickest at the end. It's a bit pathetic, really. And I think it's all to do with the teams not really spending enough time out on the circuit watching drivers and trying to understand the differences between them. The difference, for example, between Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz is pretty massive in terms of their techniques. Um, but if you spoke to, <clears throat> spoke to a lot of so-called <clears throat> experts in the pit lane, most of them would probably say, oh, well, they're both quick. You know, Carlos takes more risks or whatever they would say, some, <clears throat> excuse me, some rather bland, uh, meaningless answer. So I'm not a fan of shootouts. I think it's admitting defeat, and I don't, um, I don't think it achieves much. And usually they'll end up choosing the wrong driver. Is it kind of relevant that Alpine are the team carrying on the shootout considering how clueless they've been with their drivers lately? I don't think they've been clueless at all. I think they actually did a very good job with um, Oscar Piastri because he is a driver of enormous talent. And they, they, they found him and identified that very early on and gave him a big opportunity. So I don't think they've been clueless at all. I think they've been possibly the legal department's been a bit slack and a bit lax. But then you would assume that if you're Alpine, I would. I would assume that somebody like Oscar Piastri, if he's managed by Mark Webber, would have been educated well enough to know that loyalty and sincerity are more important than, you know, looking for loopholes and sliming out when you want to get out of a out of a deal. And, uh, you know, Mark Webber, I think, always says he's very close to Jackie Stewart. And uh, he would know better than anybody that Jackie Stewart drove for Ken Tyrrell without a single written bit of paper between them ever. And they won three world championships. So, yeah, for Alpine to put all that money and effort into Oscar Piastri, all that testing he's done this year, uh, is is pure indication of what they want to do with him. And they announced him as their lead driver anyway. So there was no doubt at all about Alpine's intentions. And he's gone away because at the time McLaren were sort of on the table. His only real option seemed to be in a Williams for a year. And being in a Williams didn't exactly hurt George Russell, for example, or Nigel Mansell, or Alan Jones, or a few others. 
So um, yeah, I'm not impressed with that behaviour of, of piastries, and I, and I think I don't think it's correct to call Alpine clueless. I think more than most, they're out there putting putting quite a lot of effort into young drivers. Jack Doohan being a very good example. Actually, on the subject of that, I, I want to know your take on how this actually trickles down into the junior formula series because now a team like Alpine is investing a ton of money and bringing up quite a few drivers. Obviously, Piastri has fallen through the net, and and what we know exactly how that's happened, but. Is that kind of a bit demotivated for any team in that case to kind of not put money on, on drivers? Because now they've invested tons of money. They no longer have to finish product. It's suddenly gone to direct driver. Will that change much in the ecosystem? Because Microsoft well, now was pretty critical of that element. Yeah, I think the problem with generalizing like that is that every team's driver academy is completely different. And most of them are based on drivers paying to be there in the first place. So they're not really driver academies in the way that you and I would like them to be, i.e., here's a guy with enormous talent. Let's give him an opportunity and help him raise money for Formula 2 and Formula 3 and Formula 1. They're not like that. They're basically uh, to do with scouts who go to cart race meetings around the world. They look for the drivers with the biggest motorhomes, in other words, the wealthiest dads. And then having sorted through that group, they then look for the wealthy drivers who've got the most talent uh, in that order. And then they might be offered a place in the seat. That's certainly the case for most of them. And, and probably the case with Alpine as well. I just think in Piastri's case, you know, there was a guy that they got behind with talent. And I think it's the same with Theo Pocher with Sauber. I think that you know they're they're doing quite a good job with him because he's not a guy with a massive amount of money, but he's got a massive amount of talent, and and I think also to repeat the point, I think you know they're doing that with Jack Doohan, who again you know needs quite a lot of support. So they they those teams are doing quite a good job. I mean Red Bull obviously, I would say Red Bull are the most hit and miss of the lot. If you, you think of the number of drivers they've signed and then got rid of without really running them and doing whatever's appropriate. 90% of the money and time they wasted could have been saved if they'd done a better job with the evaluation of the young drivers in the first place, which um, they still haven't improved. They're still doing it based on results rather than results and the feel of the handshake rather than actually how the guy drives the car. Uh, so Red Bull were very hit and miss, but they throw so much uh, time and effort and money at it. They're the one team that does spend money at it that um, inevitably they're going to have some bullseyes from time to time. But, you know, a fairly typical deal will be uh, and I better not mention any of the academies here because um, probably not appropriate, but a fairly typical deal will be to say to the father of a pr- promising looking Formula 3 driver who perhaps has got two thirds of the budget, um, you know, we'd like you to run in our colours next year. We'll give you a, some simulation at the factory. We'll invite you to a couple of Grand Prix. You can be in photo sessions with the drivers. Um, helmet overalls and car will be in our colours. And then they, having done that deal, the father thinks, oh, wow, that's great. My son's, you know, Formula One Academy driver. Um, But then they say, well, um, by the way, we want you to be with either Prima, ART or DAMS or whatever it is, whatever category, but obviously one of the top ones, which are the most expensive. So the father thinks, oh, well, you know, I can find the extra money. Yeah, I'll do that. You know, I'm only paying half of it now, but he's still paying a fortune. And um, And then they go to the team and they say, we've just introduced you a driver. So we want a percentage on the money that... Uh, we're bringing to the team and they get at least 20, 30% of the money that they're spending back from the team as a, as a commission anyway. And then the minute uh, there's a delay in any of the payments, which may well happen, if they want, they just fire the driver immediately, which is why quite you see quite a lot of Red Bull drivers in tears. So it's a very nasty, tough, not very nice business, that whole, and it's not run very well. And I'm saying all that because... I've been campaigning for five years now that we should have a much better 
system. Formula One should have a much better system of identifying young drivers for the future and doing that in an equitable way from regions around the world, rather than letting the teams do all this business of focusing on which cut drivers got the wealthiest father. And I'm saying that because obviously we have an Indian audience and I and I and I feel very strongly that Formula One obliged India to spend a lot of money to have a circuit for Formula One and did a few races and then left. And I think it's a great shame. And I think we should by now have at least two, if not three, Indian drivers in Formula One. And I did a proposal to Liberty, as I say, about five years ago now, to say that it's not difficult to pinpoint young carters in countries like India, uh, say the best five, say, bring them to Europe. In the Indian region, create a sort of Netflix virtual reality, um, you know, which driver is going to make it, really make it an interesting TV show. And not virtual reality, um, reality TV. And and follow these three, five drivers from Formula 4 up into Formula 1. But the money should be coming from Formula 1. It should be percentages taken out of all the teams uh, throughout the year on their income in order to make sure that in four or five years' time, we've got a driver from China, we've got a driver from the Middle East, we've got a driver from India, we've got two American drivers. And that's what Formula 1 needs. And... And it's not difficult to do that. It's very easy to do that, actually, and much easier than trying to get a circuit built in a country and raising the money for that and then continually raising the money to put on the Grand Prix every year, for example, or trying to get a team from a country to come over and be an Indian team or an American team. That's incredibly complicated as well. But actually, to do a driver program is quite simple. And when I made this proposal to, to Liberty, they said, this is really interesting. This is great. This is what we should be doing, but it's really complicated, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> and that's it. That's as far as I got. And I find it incredibly annoying that Formula One is still down this old antiquated path of the teams focusing on the drivers who've got the money and then trying to make them good racing drivers, as distinct from trying to find the good racing drivers and, and using their own resources, not necessarily their own money, but their marketing departments and all the other things that young drivers can benefit from to help them raise their own money for Formula 3 and Formula 2. Some of the teams are starting to do that and they do it reasonably well, but generally speaking, that doesn't happen. And I mean, if you're in the Ferrari Young Driver Academy, it's very difficult to ring up a computer company and say, I'm in the Ferrari Young Driver Academy. I'd love to meet the CEO of this company and and I can introduce you to all the key players at Ferrari and you can have lunch with Charles Leclerc. Um, would you like to do this? He can't do that. He's not allowed to do that. He's not allowed to touch any of the assets of the Formula One team. And I think that's missing the point, really, because what the young guys need is all of those tools and, and those are what generate the money. So I'd love to see I'd love to see us going back to a proper or going to, we've never had it, a proper young driver program that makes sense globally. South Africa. Latin America, you know, we need these, we need drivers from these countries in Formula One. We don't necessarily need races in these countries. We don't necessarily need more teams. We need the drivers. And at the moment, it's not happening. You know, that is fantastic. It's like been a blockbuster opening few minutes already, Peter. And, you know, you what you mentioned is so interesting that Formula One should have its own driver academies. And I mm. had the responsibility of running the driver academy at Force India, of which Jehan yeah. Daruwala yeah, is, is, 
Yeah, thank you. <laughs> he's he's a byproduct, and yeah. you know the the academy after a point stalled because the team didn't just have the funding yeah. to push the driver. So you know, if Formula One comes and does it, of like course. you said, out of a t- every team's percentage of budgets mm. and and so on, mm. then at least we know it's not going to be dependent on a team owner or his or her uh, finances. Well, yeah, and, so and, you, and you won't get you won't get the F two champion not racing. Because by definition, the best drivers are always going to have the budgets they necessarily need to progress up the ladder. That's how the American system works with with uh, Road to Indy. And Formula One doesn't have that. It's ludicrous that it doesn't have that because it's much more international than, than IndyCar. So if any, any category of racing in the world should have a properly organized young driver academy program, a generalized program, an umbrella program embracing all of the teams, it's Formula One. And, 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 you know, you, and that way, Formula One could then introduce other things into the way drivers are molded, which will never happen if you just leave it to the teams. And I'm, I'm thinking, for example, another thing that I've often beaten the drum about is over the winter when Formula One eventually grinds to a halt and not much happens before the first race of the new season is a time when the drivers actually should be out there touring the world and doing charity kart racing and big chat shows in America and beating the drum about Formula One, particularly in the regions where they're growing in Formula One. And we need to get more enthusiasm and more spectators. And, you know, we we need to have Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz and Max Verstappen doing a three-week tour of the United States in mid-December, early January, doing all the big chat shows promoting the big three Formula One races in America the following year. That doesn't happen because the teams are in control of the drivers. And so the drivers say, well, I'm never going to do that. The teams say, oh, okay. And that's that. And similarly, you know, we're just on the surface of it now, but there's a lot of swearing in Formula One now, and there's quite a lot of gratuitous um, misbehavior. Again, if Liberty had more control of the next generation of drivers, because they're the ones actually producing them, there'd be a much better... Uh, higher standard of behavior, I think. And then you're getting into the sort of areas of tennis and golf where there is a much higher standard of behavior. So, yeah, there are a lot of reasons to do it. The only reason not to do it might be the one they said, it's too complicated, but too complicated compared with what? You know, it's not too complicated compared with putting on a race or building a team. So, yeah, that's my thinking. And I, I say, you know, Force India... I think should be applauded for the job they did in trying to get young drivers out there. And we have Jehan Darubla, and I really hope he makes Formula One because he's got the talent to do it. And, and, and it's a shame that none of the other teams or Formula One at the time got, got into that and said to Vijay Malia, you're doing a great job with these Indian drivers. We need India in Formula One. We need Indian drivers in Formula One. We need to come and help you with this. It was just left as a sort of force India program. And no wonder it eventually ran out of, steam because a young driver program is going to be the first thing you you cull if the team is you know on the edge financially and that's exactly what happened and mm. you know there's this whole uh push to get formula one and america together and then also keep the chinese race with choke one you and and keep china also on the calendar and so on and I keep wondering when is Formula One sort of going to shift the focus to India as well, because by their own reports, there are 31 million fans in the country, and that's pretty 
sizable in itself. And you know what you said is very interesting because MotoGP has just announced that it's going to go to India for seven years. They're going to be racing at the same circuit where mm. Formula One raced and so on. So the the facilities are there, the interest and the intent is there. It's just a matter of whether Formula One wants to focus on that market. And then would they want to use Jehan Daruwala to also see if he can be one of the sort sort of the drivers for that market? Yeah. And, and as I keep saying, I mean, if you leave it to the teams, it'll never happen because the teams are only thinking of how they're going to pay the wage bill next month for all the thousand people they employ, uh, the next race, the next development, the next compromise that has to be made between the cost cap and finding a tenth of a second a lap in the car. All those things are of critical importance to a team. And so this broad brush 30,000 foot view of what is healthy for the sport in the future is something that they never get around to thinking about because, you know, most Formula One people that I know never think more than about three months in advance ever. Ron Dennis was different. Bernie was different. They could think five years in advance, but virtually everybody else I've ever known in Formula One rarely thinks more than about three months ahead. Actually, uh, on that subject of teams not thinking ahead and teams moving to other options, let's say like trying to become a national team of sorts in a way to sort of milk an interesting market. I want to touch upon the whole USGP effort that you were so critically involved in back in the day. Because I remember we had Bob Varsha on the pop, on the podcast last year and he was talking about how this would and could have been a great effort from Formula One and you guys to kind of monetize the American market in a way it had never been done before at that point of time. Obviously, things have changed. Liberty Media have taken a big step forward. But you, you being at the very core of it, Peter, I just want to know your perspective on just what really happened over there. Because the videos of the team are still online. You can still see the crash test videos and whatnot, the tour of the facility and everything yeah. on the internet. And th- there was a great deal of hope from everyone that, okay, this might just end up happening. If I'm not wrong, and if the rumors are correct, you also had drivers signed on. So just where, where, did, where did it all fall through at the end? Was it just a lack of time? No, no, it wasn't. Well, it was a lack of time, but not, not, from, our, not from our side. The, uh, the whole genesis of the team was that there were, as there are today, certainly places on the grid for new teams. We only have 20 cars, 10 teams. We should have... 13 teams and 26 cars. But uh, everyone at that point was starting to get a bit scared off, as they are today, about doing a team because of the costs. Costs are much more now than then because all of the teams in current teams are much wealthier than they were then and even more reluctant to make the slice that they have of the cake smaller, which is inevitably what would happen if more teams came into Formula One. So there's much more resistance now to having new teams coming in than ever before because none of the incumbents want that to happen. All they want is an Audi saying, here's a free engine or a Porsche saying, here's a free engine. What they don't want is Audi coming in with a team because it means they're going to have less money. So that's the first point. When we were doing it, there were, as I say, three grid places. Nobody was making any effort at all to take them up. David Richards had applied for a a grid slot uh, and his concept was to run McLarens, <laughs> customer McLarens, and that was knocked on the head. And everybody thought, oh, well, that's not going to happen. No problem. So uh, Ken Anderson, who I knew very well, very good guy, very technical guy, um, who I knew from Penske Dampers when I was at Williams, uh, had gone back to America at least 10, 15 years before I, and well, was before I went there. And um, we kept in touch. And he said, you know, you wouldn't believe one day, he said to me, Peter, how the technology 
base from, say, Charlotte down to Daytona has grown over the last 10 years because of NASCAR. People write NASCAR off as being pretty basic, but he said there's some incredible carbon shops, incredible machine shops, amazing um, uh, fabrication as well. And, uh, and of course, he'd just finished work on, on building the uh, full-scale wind tunnel for Gene Haas, the wind shear tunnel. So obviously wind tunnel and aerodynamically, there was a lot there as well. And then we looked at the sums of actually building a Formula One car in the United States using all of that technology base on the east on the east coast there, and being being as you know as luxurious as we could possibly be, the budget still came out at about fifty percent less than we would spend if we did a car in England or France or Italy or Germany or Switzerland or anywhere else. So we thought, well, that's an interesting point. And secondly, America is a very big country. Nobody's ever done a very good job of harnessing corporate America into Formula One. There's a lot of money in NASCAR, but you know maybe an American Formula One team might attract quite a lot of of uh, corporate interest. So there were two things that were interesting. And then thirdly, there hadn't been an American driver for a long time, you know, exclude Scott Speed. There hadn't been one really since, I don't know, was it Peter Repson? And um, and so we thought, well, there's another thing, you know, American drivers in Formula One, no bad thing. It's all great heritage the United States has with Formula One. So there were three good reasons to do it. And so we very quietly, um, with a plan of walking in year one, maybe getting into a gentle trot in year two, and maybe a canter in year three, and maybe a bit of a gallop in year four. The normal way, uh, we we went out onto the actually we went to the west coast to Silicon Valley, which we felt was a rather was an interesting new area for potential money, and we did a series of roadshows out there in which I presented the concept of doing an American F1 team, US F1, and it was about roadshow three when we started to hit gold nuggets and people saying, this is just amazing. We'd love to be a part of this. And we started to get a lot of backing and a lot of good people. And at the time, um, our budget was, you know, it was, it was approximately in the region of 30 to million, 30 to $50 million a year because the cost of running the car was so cheap, building the car. And we were going to run it from, uh, from Europe, obviously, a race operation in Europe. And, and so we did it. And we, we actually agreed a deal with uh, an investor, a couple of good investors. And the next thing I knew, Max Mosley was on the phone saying, Peter, this is the most amazing thing we've had in Formula One for a long time. Congratulations. Absolutely brilliant. Um, we'll put you at the top of the list for, uh, in the, for, the, for next season. This is January 2008, 2009. And, and I said, wow, that's great. Um, and he said, we need to sign you into the Concord Agreement first, and that won't take long. And uh, this is really exciting. Congratulations. And, um, and then I had Bernie on the phone not long after that, because we, we'd already approached Toyota North America, and they'd said, we'd love to be a part of this, you know, free engines, no problem at all. This is brilliant American Formula One team. Um, and I had Bernie on the phone saying, Peter, um, I've got Luca Montezemolo sitting next to me. Luca, tell Peter what you just told me. And Luca said, Peter, I know you're talking to Toyota. We want you to run Ferrari engines. We want you to deal with Ferrari. This is just so good for North America. We know you. We know Ken Anderson. This is going to be a great team. Make sure you've got American drivers. And that's always was always the plan. And um, I said, yeah, brilliant. So we started. And uh, everything was fine then for about six weeks. And then I had Bernie on the phone saying, Peter, stop the, stop the Ferrari deal, stop the Toyota deal, got a new deal for you. 
Uh, we're going to create a new championship next year called the Budget Cap Championship, based on roughly you reckon you can do a team for. We're going to invite lots of other teams to come and do the same thing because I'm pissed off with all the current guys. They're all McLaren, Ferrari. They're being a pain in the ass. They won't sign the new Concord Agreement. So I'm going to create a new championship. Uh, you're going to have a much bigger rear wing. You can have a lot more revs that you can run. The only thing is you've got to run Cosworth engines and you've got to buy them from me and I'm on a £7,000 deposit by next week. Otherwise, you're out. So I thought, well, that's a bit rich, you know, free engines. And we don't really want to be in a new championship burning. I just want to race with everybody else in the normal way. We want to get on the back of the grid and do what everybody else has done when they do a new team. Well, that's not going to happen. We're doing a new championship. It's called Budget Cap. Phone down. Click. So um, so that was the end of the Ferrari and Toyota deals for a start. And then, of course, we tried to go through all the hoops of this new Budget Cap formula. What had happened, of course, behind the scenes is that some, I think it came through Max more than anything, but Nick Worth there um, had all heard about this. And basically, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine they'd all said to Max, well, if those idiots, Windsor and, and Anderson, can do that, then we should be doing a team as well. Why aren't we doing a team? And they all suddenly thought, oh, let's all do a team. So all of a sudden, out of the woodwork from nowhere, 10 people, 10 different groups all said, oh, we can do a team for this amount of money. And so the next thing I knew was that, oh, we can't sign you into the Concord Agreement now because we're going to do, um, everybody has to uh, go to CBC, who were the commercial rights holder, and present their case. And we're going to have 10 teams bidding for, for the three spaces, three slots. And this went on and on and on. And of course, we couldn't spend one cent or do anything until we were signed into the Concord Agreement. What investor is going to put money into a team that isn't actually signed into the Concord Agreement. So we had all these investors and potential sponsors. And yes, I was talking to lots of drivers as well, uh, all of whom were great. And, um, and, and so to cut a very long story sideways, eventually it was, I don't know, it was about August, September or something. They said, oh, the great news, USF1 is one of the three teams that's going to be accepted into this new budget cap thing. And we didn't want the budget cap thing. I didn't want to be a part of that. And I knew it would never happen anyway. I knew it was just a Bernie ruse to get, McLaren and Ferrari and and Williams to come to the table. And uh, sure enough, that's exactly what did happen. Um, but anyway, when we got signed in, I said, well, this is ludicrous because, you know, we were, according to the plan we put to you and everybody, we've got to create a factory with all its infrastructure. We've got to design and build a car, get it through all the crash testing. We've got to do a million other things. And you want us to be ready by next February in four months? You've got to be joking. Give us a year, give us a year and a half, and we'll be there. And, of course, Max said, well, no, why would I do that? I've got eight other teams that are ready to take your place tomorrow. And so we said, okay, we'll give it a try. You know, there's no way it's going to happen, but we'll give it a try. Well, what can we do? So that's why it looked like the way it did, but it was complete nonsense. And, um, you know, I, I always found it was rather irritating. I found it irritating that when Gene Haas decided to come into Formula One, he was given a good two years to get his team and car ready. And it was a Delara anyway. It wasn't even his own car. So, you know, we were never given that. We were given four months and to do a factory and a team and a car. So if you came in from that moment and said, well, what are these idiots trying to do a team so quickly for without knowing the history of the thing? You would, you would think we were idiots. But, you know, I, all I can say now is that like all things in life, when you start to do things that are different and original and creative, you draw up a list of ups and downs if they do involve some sacrifices and you say, what could possibly go wrong here? And in my experience, and I had a reasonable amount by then and do today, I had a list of about 10 things that could go wrong from we don't have a great car, we don't have great drivers, we kill a driver in the first race, American sponsors hate Formula One and never we never get any real backing to a million other things that could have gone wrong. 
But not in a million years did I ever imagine that Max Mosley and Bernie Eccleston would create a new world championship in theory around which we would have to compete. We didn't want uh, with a four month time frame to do a team that could never be done in that time frame. I mean, how could you ever predict such rubbish? But that's exactly what happened. And today, a lot of people probably don't know that background. But yes, I think it's a great shame because I'm not saying because of my involvement, but I think the concept of USF1 doing an all-American car, made in America on the nose, run from Europe, uh, using American technology with two American drivers, I think is a great concept. And I'm staggered that Haas has found it so difficult to find corporate American backing for his team, because probably because it's a Delara, I don't know. But um, but we certainly didn't. you know. And as I say, I had Luca Montezemolo offering free engines within about three weeks of, of the deal. And all that had to be thrown away. And it's a great shame. And the difficult thing was getting through that, really, and getting through the, you know, the ignorance of people who didn't understand exactly what had happened and what had gone wrong, and then having to reboot. But it was a good thing in the way, because then I had to discover the internet and do what I'm doing now. So, uh, yeah, some things work out for the better, I guess. Wow. Wow. We, I, I, I didn't know this backstory to it. But mm. Peter, we've only got a couple of minutes more before mm. actually we've got to let you go. And, and on that mm. basis, the last question I want to ask you on that yeah. very thing is, were F1 sort of short-sighted with their plans to get more teams? Because all the three teams that did eventually come in in 2010, they really didn't last long, did they? Well, so, no, so because they all came yeah. in, having told companies like Virgin mm. or whatever, um, that they were going to do it on 30 million. But And if it was a 30 million budget cap, and everybody was racing to that. I suppose it could have worked, but of course it wasn't. It was the normal world championship again, because as I predicted, the thing, Bernie's championship never happened. So all of these teams that supposedly, you know, it just came out of the woodwork when they heard this thing that Max had announced, they were in there and suddenly they were swimming in very deep waters, having imagined they were going to be in a tiny, you know, paddling pool. And that's why they all failed, basically. And uh you know, you could, I mean, I'm sure Ross Braun would say, oh, we didn't fail. But, you know, obviously that was a different situation with, with Honda and so forth with Braun. But, um, you know, it was a, it was a ridiculous thing. You know, it was just, it actually pains me to think about it now because, um, you know, none of it was for the, when I think about Adrian Campos, the sacrifices he made to try and do it right. And, you know, it, it was never going to work because everything was wrong. The build up to it was not, where they were racing anyway. They were all they're all part of this stupid budget cap thing. Well, we it, it's actually changed my entire perspective on the early 2010s era of Formula One. But, mm. but that's amazing, Peter. So it was amazing to hear this. But unfortunately, we've got to let you go at this stage because time is unfortunately running short. But luckily, we've got yeah. you on for our USGP watch along coming up rather soon. And, well, and that's we right. Have, yeah, we should have a lot more stories and more insights to discuss about the race over there as well. So it'll be amazing to have you there on, Peter. And folks, if you haven't registered yet, check out the link in the description below to sign up for that. But Peter, thank you for sparing out your time for this episode. Thank you for joining us. And see you for the United States Grand Prix. It's going to be a ton of fun to have you over there. Yep, looking forward to it and uh, looking forward to interfacing with your fans as well. Thank you. Thank you for watching, folks. Thank you for listening. And we shall see you rather soon. Bye-bye.